Morning, glory, and evening, Grace America. I hope you're enjoying the day of Lincoln, the day after Thanksgiving on the Hugh Hewitt Show with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Every uh, every hour of the Hillsdale Dialogues, including this and the previous two, are available at HughForHillsdale.com. We have to be speedy in this hour. We have so much more to at least touch on on the life of Lincoln. And one of the things that we'll reference is called the Dred Scott decision. And for the benefit of those who are not lawyers, the Supreme Court has made some real doozy of bad decisions in its day. Korematsu, Plessy B. Ferguson, Roe v. Wade. But by most common agreement, the worst decision ever made was the Dred Scott decision, which held that uh, blacks were not uh, human beings, nor could they enjoy uh, civil rights of any sort, legal rights of any sort. And so uh, Lincoln will be hearing a lot about now has cause to debate that proposition with uh, both at the Cooper Union and with Stephen Douglas. And Larry, where were you when we left off? I was going to tell you, I'd gone into this uh, thing that uh, there was a universal opinion, Lincoln called it, or nearly so, that we couldn't live with black people as our equal citizens and we must not intermarry them. And that uh, was held very widely, but of course not universally, even among people who were pronouncedly anti-slavery. And so Lincoln says, you know, uh, well, here's a typical example. It's from the Charleston debate in September 18th, 1858. And then he says something very remarkable, which I'm going to parse out for you. I say upon this occasion, I do not perceive that because the white man is to have the superior position, the Negro should be denied everything. So in other words, you're saying the white man is to have the superior position. I do not understand that because I do not want a Negro woman for a slave, I must necessarily want her for a wife. My understanding is that I can just let her alone. I am now in my 50th year, and I certainly never have had a black woman for either a slave or a wife. So it seems to me quite possible for us to get along without making either slaves or wives of Negroes. I will add to this that I have never seen, to my knowledge, a man, woman, or child who is in favor of producing a perfect equality, social and political, between Negroes and white men. Now, this is the important part. I recollect recollect of but one distinguished instance that I ever heard of so frequently as to be entirely satisfied of its correctness. And that is the case of Judge Douglas' old friend, Colonel Richard M. Johnson. So who was Richard M. Johnson? So in other words, Lincoln is saying, I'm not for intermarriage, and the whites are going to be superior. And I've never seen anybody who maintains that, that that it should be otherwise, then stop. But I recollect but one distinguished instance that I've ever heard of as a distinguished instance of somebody who is in favor of producing a perfect equality, social and political, between Negroes and white men. This is Richard Johnson. Richard Johnson was from Lincoln's native Kentucky. Uh, He was vice president of the United States under Andrew Jackson. Ah. It was important that he was a famous dueler. And that mattered. He killed a lot of people because he inherited a family, a Negro family of his and and there was a, a woman in the family, a girl in the family of his age, and he fell in love with her. And it was illegal in Kentucky for him to marry her, and so he changed her name to her first name, Mrs. Richard Johnson. And they had four children, and he wrote a beautiful letter about the death of one of them in his arms of the fever and how his heart died with her. 
and it was illegal in Kentucky for him to leave them his property, and so he gave it to them before he died. Huh? And so Lincoln points in the middle of these denials to an example that he calls distinguished. And I, I, I myself, I think so. And and you know, there are these other things. Boy, that's elegant. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's redeeming myself, and and uh, and these other things are there, and you have to understand that in light of this difficult fact, Lincoln's positioning of an, an interpretation of America is that it calls us to do things that we are never fully going to be able to do, but we will be, we will be made ever better by trying. What does he do, Larry Arn, at the Cooper Union? Well, after so he has these arguments with Douglas and and uh, through the Dred Scott decision and the Senate campaign and and uh, he he makes a national name uh, and then he goes back east in 1859, I think it is, and uh, and he gives these speeches and at Cooper Union. He lays out his fundamental case for the first time in the East. and uh, It still what, exists, by the way. I've been there. I, I, I urge people to go there. Some days the doors are open and you can walk in, and people don't realize it's, it's a building on which most of America depends in many respects. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, it's, and the speech, uh, you know, I'll read you the end of it if you want me to, but um, um, he takes on the Dred Scott decision. Maybe we could just talk about the Dred Scott case here, because Roger Tawney writes in the thing that the right of property to slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. That's a quote. And Lincoln refutes that point in his Euclidean logical way by mentioning that the word slavery is not in the Constitution. And so it can't be distinctly and expressly affirmed. And then and then he takes on the things that Tawney says about the way uh, black people were regarded back then. And he says, uh, it's just wrong, he says, because, for example, in five states, they were voting, just like white people. And in some of those states, in the time Lincoln is speaking, some of them are still voting. And it has been constrained in some states, and that's part of the retrograde movement that Lincoln speaks of. And and then he says that... Uh, 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 that he, he, he doesn't name it, but he makes an indirect reference, or he makes reference to the Northwest Ordinance. And he says, about this question of the expansion or, or extension of slavery into new territories, the people who framed the government under which we live, the men who made the Constitution, decided in our favor on this question of slavery expansion, and they decided it uh, unanimously and without division among them. And that's what the Northwest Ordinance does. And so he says, Tawney misreads, because Tawney's ruling, Dred Scott was a slave, and he was taken into Illinois, and he sued because he'd been taken into a free state that he ought to have his freedom. And the thing gets up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court decides by a 5-4 majority with many opinions written. This is, by the way, the second time the, the Supreme Court ever struck down a law under the Constitution. The first time was Marbury versus Madison. And Tawney says that in the founding, they, under the terms of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, the uh, Negro has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. And he says that Congress has no power 
to forbid the taking of any kind of property into any federal territory, right. which simply undercuts the whole plan of the Republican Party to attack it constitutionally by preventing its spread and making sure it's overwhelmed by freedom. And, and so Lincoln addresses himself to this in, in what I think is a, a very beautiful way, because his argument about the court, and it's a, it's a primer on how we ought to look at these bad court decisions, including the modern ones you mentioned, Hugh, and that is courts decide parties between cases. And that means in the case of Dred Scott, Dred Scott's done. There's no legal remedy left for him now. The highest court in the land has ruled him a slave. And the court, the Supreme Court, its, its opinions about constitutional matters is, are also weighty and worthy of respect. But when a divided court, he says this in his first inaugural, when a divided court uh, ruling on a single occasion about a matter that is not uh, accepted in the public mind and which there's not a body of rulings about, then if that is dispositive of the question, the people shall have ceased to be their own rulers. And so Lincoln, and you know, the, the Dred Scott decision, if it had prevailed, was a death blow to the Republican Party and would have delivered the Union into the hands of the popular sovereignty movement and the extension of slavery thereby. And it did have the inevitable effect of bringing on the war because it did, in essence, attempt to decide. I love to tell people before the break, Dr. Arn, what Justice Scalia wrote about Taney in that opinion in the dissent to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which ought to have ended the regime of abortion law in the United States. Uh, Scalia dissent, and he says, there comes vividly to mind a portrait that hangs in the Harvard Law School. Roger Brooke Taney, painted in 1859, the 82nd year of his life, the 24th of his chief justiceship, the second after his opinion in Dred Scott. He's all in black, sitting in a shadowed red armchair, left hand resting upon a pad of paper in his lap, right hand hanging limply, almost lifelessly beside the inner arm of the chair. He sits facing the viewer and staring straight out. There seems to be set on his face and his deep set of eyes an expression of profound sadness and disillusionment. People, he always, perhaps he always looked that way, even when dwelling upon the happiest of thoughts. But those of, no, of us who know how the luster of his great chief justiceship came to be eclipsed by Dred Scott cannot help believing that he had that case. It's already apparent consequences for the court, and it's soon to be played out consequences for the nation burning on his mind. I'll be right back with Larry Arn on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, it's the day of Lincoln, America, on the day after Thanksgiving with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. We were just talking about how the Supreme Court thrust the United States into a crisis, uh, the Dred Scott decision. Lincoln responded uh, with an address at the Wisconsin State Fair. Um, and what does he have to say directly to the court at that point, Larry Arn? Well, his, his, his point is, is, is in, in all of these speeches, we'll summarize them because we're going to run out of time and not get to talk about the second inaugural and the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural. Uh, here's me now for the first time exercising time this one. <laughs> um, his point is that, that Tawney's account of the founding and the attitudes in the founding is wrong. In fact, slavery was universally condemned. I mean, almost uniformly, and by all the leaders at the time of the founding, and the records are there. And also their actions explain. And then finally, um, this reading that that founding generation was a dark day, and originalism requires us to 
read the Constitution according to these bad opinions they have, Lincoln's final answer is, those are the opinions that have arisen only later among us, yep. connected to the idea of evolution, for example, that they have evolved to a place to be our inferiors. And, and uh, there's a kind of a scientism in John Calhoun, for example, who writes, uh, it would be impious to think that God would give us the power of modern science and yet uh, enable us to use it for evil. So, uh, you know, the early seeds of progressivism are in some of that stuff. And Lincoln refutes all that. And then he, by the way, proceeds then to carry on his campaign on the, on the, on the idea that we will not ever, we're, in his first inaugural, Lincoln says, if you want to amend the Constitution to say that the federal government may not interfere in the institution of slavery in any state where it exists, it would be redundant to do that, but I will not oppose it. And I pledge that I will never do that. Yep. And I, and I, I think a lesson for people today distressed by court rulings is that Lincoln took them on and argued them and made them key parts of his campaign, which we're told today, Larry, and you can't do that nobody cares. But in fact, that's his entire argument. Yeah. And he, he said, yeah, he, you know, the rule of law, he upholds that at the same time. This has to be taken seriously, he said. But he said... The court reverses itself all the time. Let us work for the reversal. Uh, One of his doctrines in the first inaugural uh, is that every constitutional officer swears an oath to the Constitution, and they must uh, serve the Constitution in the way that they understand it. And so the court is one very powerful voice, but there are others. And, you know, the court itself is subject to change over long periods of time. It's a membership. And so the interplay between politics and the ruling of the court is, is the right thing because ultimately what the Constitution means is in the hands of the people of the United States. And we also have to tell folks, uh, in, the, in the next segment we'll do the Gettysburg Address, in the last segment the second inaugural address, but the first inaugural address is dramatic. The, the country's coming apart at the seams, there are assassination plots, the, uh, the, 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 the race is a four-way, four-way race for the president, Lincoln barely wins, he comes into town in disguise, and then he has to give his first inaugural address, and he does not shrink, Larry Arnie, says secession is not on the table. Yeah, he does. And uh, he won't meet with uh, some representatives of the seceding states who were, as he says in the speech, styled themselves ambassadors. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd forgotten that. That's so, that's so nicely dismissive. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. And, you know, they were, they were uh, the, the, there's a constitutional argument here and in the first inaugural. And, the, you know, the people made the union as they are organized in states, uh, no party to a contract can break the contract by itself. There are powerful reasons why uh, uh, states can't secede, beginning with the fact that the Constitution doesn't say they can. Uh, And he says, I hold in contemplation of universal law and the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. And, of course, it is to make a more perfect union, which means there was a union even before the Constitution. Uh, He says he he makes the argument that it's much older than the Constitution. Then he says, what about all the territory that's held in common by the union? What about the debt 
attached to that territory. Who owes for that if they just leave of their own? Uh, then he says, in the end, the speech becomes beautiful, and there's a, a great uh, uh, appeal that the way we work things out like this is we have elections, not, not bullets, but ballots. And he says that we're the first country that can do that. Uh, and, then he, and then he turns with, with this very powerful appeal, and it begins with this paragraph. He says, uh, physically speaking, we cannot separate. We cannot remove our respective sections from each other, nor build an impassable wall between them. And a husband and wife may be divorced and go out of the presence and beyond the reach of each other, but the different parts of our country cannot do this. And all of these problems, he says, that we're having about fugitive slaves and all that, that will be worse if we are, if we are different countries. He closes with these two paragraphs. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have taken the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. I am loath to close. We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. That, that is really remarkable. Um, and, and, he, and he spoke it at a time when he could not have been an optimist about holding it together, Larry Arn. Well, he thought, uh, you know, he had, uh, he, in, in the war, he says, I was driven to my knees so often there was nowhere else to go. And, you know, he could hardly sleep, and uh, the news was bad for so long. And uh, it's also true that uh, Lincoln, you know, we talked about Churchill on the show, and Churchill was a hell of a guy in a battle. He didn't like battles, just like Lincoln, but boy, when he fought them. And Lincoln was awesome. Uh, there's a really good history of the Civil War. It's old now, written by a journalist from Ohio, your native place, Bruce Kenton. Oh, yes, marvelous books. And after the uh, Battle of Antietam, a disastrous battle, every time Lee went north, he got beat. Um, uh, uh, I haven't memorized. Kenton writes this thing after he sums up the battle. He says... And so the war expanded again to a place that no one had imagined. But also it narrowed to two men, Lincoln and Lee, with the awful ability to make men love them and the ruthlessness to tell them what to do. Wow. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn on the day of Lincoln. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. So the war narrowed to two men, Lincoln and Lee. Uh, who had the uh, awful ability to make people love them. That is, that's remarkable. Bruce Catton is the author of that. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest on this day of Lincoln, the day after Thanksgiving. And the war came, and we'll talk about that next segment. We talk about the second inaugural. But Lee went north, not just at Antietam. He came north in 1863 uh, to the three-day Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, and then he retreated and was not pursued 
And a cemetery had to be dedicated about 151 years ago when we taped this originally, Larry Arn, and thus becomes the greatest speech in America's collective memory. Yeah, it's uh, that or the second inaugural or there's some other good ones, but it's one of the best, that's for sure. And it's a tremendous compactness. Um, I should say about it, you know, it's on November 19th, 1863, and the Battle of Gettysburg was a very narrowly run thing. If you've seen the the TBS special, I think it was, Gettysburg, that's actually made up out of a wonderful book that's short and very worth reading called The Killer Angels. We've talked with his son, the author of that, many times on this show. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. The Killer Angels is a very great book. And, and, uh, um, and so the battle itself was, you know, one of the biggest of the war and very costly. And uh, Lincoln comes, Edward Everett, a great man who spoke here at Hillsdale, and who left some books to us. Uh, we, we have memory things of his around here. The governor and senator from Massachusetts spoke before him and spoke for a long time. And then Lincoln gave this beautiful short speech, and then I just happened to know that Edward Everett then wrote Lincoln a long letter about how much better Lincoln's speech was than his and how sorry he was he talked so long. And Lincoln wrote him a short and beautiful letter back. <laughs> so we, we have our pattern. But everybody's got this memorized, or I hope they do. And it's a poem, and it's about the purposes of the war and the duties that come to us because of the war. And uh, we take our duties from these fallen dead. That's the theme. And it really is a, a, a speech about about the improvement and deepening of the Union from the trial through which it passes, just as the second inaugural is a speech about the same thing because of the judgment that has been visited on the Union. And uh, do you want to read it? Maybe I, read I want it. you to give the, the, the segment. It's like not playing the record that you've referenced, Larry. If you don't at least give the conclusion, people will feel like they've been left hanging. So he says, four scores seven years ago, and that dates back to the Declaration of Independence, which he says is the founding moment of the Union. And uh, we're going to dedicate this field, and uh, it's right that we should do it. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. By the way, what are we doing right now? Yep. But it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Now, Larry Arm, when he finishes that, people aren't even sure he's finished it, according to Ken Burns, because there's a huge crowd and he wanders away. He hasn't talked about slavery in that speech, uh, specifically, or about the Emancipation Proclamation, or about where the war is going. But in many respects, he's saying we are—we're just back on the course that we were originally. Well, and and and, but we have to do better, you see. And so it is. 
it, it is a, a classic eulogy because its purpose is to is to find the meaning in the death that have occurred here in the lives that will go on and that's its point its point is now we've done this thing and and now we have to redeem it we hear a new birth of freedom we hear highly resolve so it's not just because of their sacrifice that we honor them or we honor them because of their sacrifice but really we also owe them to support the cause for which they gave their lives better than we have in the past we come back we're going to talk about uh, i said the most famous speech is gettysburg but i happen to think the greatest speech in american history is the second inaugural we're going to talk about that delivered on march 4th of uh, 1865 Lincoln's uh, victory speech, his valedictory speech, turns out to be really what we know him best or should know him best for. Don't go anywhere. We wrap up today's Lincoln Day on the Hugh Hewitt Show after this. 44 minutes after the hour on this day after Thanksgiving, America. I hope you've enjoyed our walk through Lincoln's life with uh, Dr. Larry Arn and his through his political philosophy. But his life ends tragically, of course, assassin's bullet. But he had managed to give the greatest speech, I think, in American history, which is his second inauguration address the sesquicentennial of which will be in March. I'm curious, Larry Arn, if Hillsdale will be having a special program on the sesquicentennial on the second inaugural. Well, we will, and uh, here on the campus, and uh, probably something at the Kirby Center, too, and uh, of course. So why is it so great? For someone who has never heard it, hasn't been to the memorial, never noticed that they're on the right-hand side of the memorial, why is it so great? Well, it's Thanksgiving, and it's uh, here we are, 2014, and... and my new son-in-law asked me that very question. Huh. <laughs> and Dan O'Toole, my son-in-law, is a learned man and a fine man. And he, his, his way of putting it was, what does it mean? And I said, it means justice. It means it, it, it establishes the union and it reestablishes the union in the common payment that has been made in the war. And it establishes peace because it takes responsibility for both sides for the war, and both sides have paid the price. Um, and it's very short. It's a little longer than the Gettysburg Address. The first inaugural is much longer, and he begins this speech by saying, uh, there isn't occasion for an extended address this time. Uh, then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed right. Now at the expiration of four years, we know what we're doing, and uh, the war is going better, and we make no prediction about the future, but we have high hope. So he begins like that. He says, I'm not going to say a lot about all that. I'm going to... And so then he proceeds in, what is it, one, two, three paragraphs to explain what the war means. Please read those. Okay. On this occasion, corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and so the war came. 
One eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war. While the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it, now it becomes poetic. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with, cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an, early, an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must be, needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both, see, to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid with another drawn with the sword, as as was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That is so remarkable, but especially, you know, you referred to the Iron Men earlier. The iron justice of the penultimate paragraph is in the, in the penultimate sentence in the penultimate paragraph. Yet if God wills it continue to all the wealth piled by the bondsman, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As it was said a thousand years ago, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He's unsparing, Larry Arn. Yeah, but also, it's a judgment to both north and south. Yes. And, uh, and, and, in the bearing of the of the pain, then the union can be rebuilt, and it's a common thing. And you know, in the like, uh, if you like to watch old movies, there is a generation of Western movies and war movies, and it's like in almost all of them. By the way, the Native Americans are noble and honorable, 
and the white man often cheats them. And North and South are, are portrayed as brave and honorable opponents. And that tradition, which seems to me, you know, I come from the South myself, and I happen to love Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, and I think Lincoln explains things about the being of America that are fundamental to it and clear in him. And also the challenge that we face in America. Because remember, in, in a world without the Declaration of Independence, this slavery is not as controversial as it is in such a world. And we paid something because of that. Still pay it. Still pay it. Larry Arn, thank you for spending the day after Thanksgiving with us. I hope, America, you have enjoyed it. It is, of course, available at HughForHillsdale.com and will be for as long as the Internet's function. I'll be right back to conclude today's program. <laughs> 